Now, now Tim, do cars in Canada drive on on the left side of the road or the right side of the road? <laughs> well, as the people in England say, we drive on the correct side. On the correct side. <laughs> <laughs> we drive on the right. Like, no, okay. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 143 of the More Than Just Code podcast. I'm Tim Mitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? We also have Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. All right. So we have some follow-up on the Ask MTJC conversation. We had actually, actually had a conversation on Ask MTJC, folks. So get your picks in there, or get your questions in there. So Jaime, can you fill us in on what uh, transpired? Yeah, this one was with uh, Kim Alberg, friend of the show, and it was in relation to the discussion we'd had before about Apple dropping its um, affiliate commissions. Um, you know, it went from 7% down to about 2.5-ish percent uh, and has been subsequently modified. Uh, but in any case, it was uh, brought to us from Kim about, you know, are we thinking that Apple drops their 30% App Store cut only on in-app purchases and subscriptions, which was something that we had said, oh, maybe they'll do this in anticipation of wowing us at WWDC and reducing their cut sort of across the board. Um, and, and some further on bit of the conversation, Kim was asking about like, oh, like, you know, I can see how it might make sense, uh, as he mentions in one of his linked tweets, where you know one could argue that affiliate linkers deserve more credit for upfront download payments and for in-app purchases and subscriptions, the app and or service has to do the selling, which I think right. is kind of insightful, like I'm brilliantly insightful. I'm like, oh yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense, right? Like it's, you know, this commission bit would, would make a whole lot more sense towards the, you know, paid up front market versus giving you a cut of introducing you to some service where, uh, you know, it's subscription or using in-app purchase to do sort of a, a lightweight or trial version where, you know, they've, they've sort of done like the bulk of the work at that point and it tips a little bit further in their direction. So I don't know. That's hmm. more to ponder on this, I think. And we'll find out in about a month's time as to whether any of this is uh, correct or not. Right, right. And it was a, a, a tweet by Federico Vicici that uh, pointed me to the follow-up um, article. I think Apple actually sent out a clarification to say that it was uh, the drop-in um, uh, referral fees was only on the in-app purchase part of um, affiliate the affiliate program. Is that correct? Yeah? I believe that's correct. And... Uh, as we've said before, we've once before said uh, MTJC regrets the error. That was Greg who said that in the uh, fall episode. Yeah. And yes, and you had responded. <laughs> and he read that on the air. That was great. We regret nothing. We were not wrong in this one. It was correct as of the time that we recorded it. <laughs> <laughs> Apple changed his mind. Yep. And if we do regret something, it'll hopefully end up on the on the edit room floor and you'll never see it. <laughs> okay. Um Right. So moving on, we have some follow-up. I uh, posted a story here that came out uh, in the middle, I think it was the Thursday after we'd recorded that uh, somebody had posted, you know, we have a lot of discussion about Mac store, Mac app store versus buying apps directly. And one app that isn't necessarily bought, but Handbrake is used by a lot of people to um, digitize uh, their discs that they hopefully have bought legally and own and therefore are entitled to make copies of and digital copies. Um, so it's been a, no a, a long time used app by people, but uh, apparently there was a version, I'm trying to find the version number here, that was hacked 
Anyway, just this is not an app that my point is this is not an app that's that's vetted by Apple, and it's not an app that's you know subject to the gatekeeper software that's in your uh, security settings, um, which you can turn on and off, uh, or you can just turn on for one instance of an install if you're dealing dealing with uh, unknown developers. What does Apple call them? They're um, I guess they're unknown developers, right? Unrecognized. Not I think so. And it tells you yeah. the, the scary warning of like, this was downloaded from oh the web. Are you really sure yeah. you want to do this? Which is, you know, that's good for you, the user. It, it's trying to protect you. And uh, just to ask a clarifying question here, because I saw that there was the the hack on one of the mirror sites that put a uh, poisoned right. version of the app. It was a little unclear to me. Like I knew this was not in the app store because this sort of thing is rather difficult to do there. But it wasn't clear to me if this developer was code signing, which is what um, you know gatekeepers use when you don't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like it was not code signed. Whereas, right, that's correct. If it had been, so I mean, certainly if it was in the app store, um, you you have to do code signing to do the app store, so it, it's taken care of. But uh, for business reasons, they may not want to be in the app store. But it sounds like they didn't go through the route of having the developer program and and code signing their stuff, so that this sort of thing could be. Um, I'm not going to say impossible, but at least very difficult to do, right? To like re-sign as that developer. Like it would be very noticeable that it wasn't their, their signature. Yeah. And the issue here I'm just reading was that, um, the hacked version download includes some malware and that's what the concern was about. Um, you're installing something on your Mac that's going to do something nefarious. Uh, the proton malware, uh, I believe. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, but, but with developers who, um, are using code signing like they're they're not in they're not selling through the Mac App Store. Are they still subject to the same kind of restrictions that or I'm using air quotes here um, that other that Mac Store Mac App Store participating developers have to use? Like um, you know they can only there's some sort of sandboxing that happens. Does that happen in those kind of cases? No, they're not subject to that. That's one of the reasons that people still do it. Well, that and the business reasons for not using the Mac App Store. So it's it's a uh, it's a little bit more of a free-for-all. You can do kind of whatever you want right. uh, compared but, to the Mac Store versions. And the code signing is, is to, to protect the consumer who's buying the, the app to know that, that they're getting it from a reliable source, right? Right. The developer sent it out, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. A, uh, a malicious developer who code signs their own code with uh, and includes malware, you, can't, you won't be protected against that. Right. <laughs> Right, not 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 at that initial point. Like if you're patient zero, but if Apple pulls, you know, and I know we talked about this on the show at some point. I'm rather flummoxed by not being able to remember what the specific scenario was, but there was something like that that did happen, and Apple ended up pulling the certificate for that um, code signed right. malware, and it immediately Dash, stops working. Yeah, well, there was there was that uh, version of Xcode that had been hacked, and people in China right, were using right. it. To, oh, the Xcode ghosts. Right, right. Mm-hmm. right. Unless you were thinking about Dash, where they tossed a guy from the store. No, that was, no, that that was, was different. That was I was different. thinking of a, a specific malware one where, you know, uh, of course, you're vulnerable until Apple figures it out. And, but then once they did, that uh, stopped working for, for everyone, which is, which is good because the malware couldn't spread itself anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm just trying to see. I'm just, uh, I, I tag all the shows. I tried to, so maybe I tagged it with malware. In the, if you go to the Word, WordPress site and you look for, um, if you're ever looking for something on, on that we talk about on the show, I do put tags in, and the episode here was 58, going way back in time. Wow, that's a long time ago. Yeah, um, 
just trying to find the reference to malware. Uh, oh, it's just, yeah. What year was that? Would that have been 2015? Um, might even be 14. 14? Yeah, no, sorry. Yeah, probably 15. Yeah, September 20th, 2015 is the article date. Hundreds of millions of devices potentially affected by first major iOS mal- malware outbreak. Mm. So that was a different 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 issue, but still. So for those of you who, are, who take the time to go visit our site, and if you're ever looking for something we talked about in the past, you can use the search uh, lozenge that's there to search for things. So I posted another link here about Apple is pretty close to becoming the uh, first, or the world's first trillion-dollar company. That's a valuation figure, right, Mark? Yes, market capitalization. Yeah, I wouldn't say they're close to becoming the first trillion dollars because they just passed eight hundred billion. Right, but uh, they're certainly closer than anybody else. Right, right. And if the iPhone eight launch goes very well, then or whatever it's going to be called then there's certainly a, a possibility that that could uh, that that number could go up. So what market cap is, if if you guys are curious? Are you curious? Yes, I am course. curious because I hear it used all the time. I don't know exactly what it is, even though yeah. I feel like I do, but I probably don't. Mm-hmm. So it's, the, it's essentially the free market value of the company on the stock market. So if you take the number of shares that are out there in the world available and multiply that by the price per share... That's the market capitalization. So that's how they value a company. That's the total. If someone were to, if someone were going to come in and buy the entire company by buying all the stock, uh, which is unlikely, but if that were to happen, that's the price they'd have to pay. Right. So there's always some stock available. So you never really hit the market cap. It's kind of like an ideal position, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. no. So market cap stands for market capitalization. Right. Which is which is the total value. Oh, okay. So of all the all the out- of of all the shares outstanding in the shares. market. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now the company may own some of those shares, or, or it, it, um, institutions may own those shares, or individual investors may own those shares. But it does matter for that for that count. Right. Right. And do all the shares necessarily belong to somebody, or are there some out there that are floating around? Uh, they belong to someone if you include the company and being part of that someone. With they have a they have a pool of unreleased shares, uh, but technically the company owns those. So yeah, they're right, all owned right. by someone. So if you were a developer working for a company and you had, and part of your uh, remuneration was uh, what you call stock options, I think, right? Um, does that does that come from that pool of uh, shares that the company owns? Or Yeah. So, work? well, there's two two different things. There's stock options and there's stock units. Uh, but, but, yeah, but they're both kind of the same in that sense. These are shares that the company has set aside uh, that are available and uh, accounted for to be eventually given out to employees or sold to employees. So yes, right. those are, those are included. Yep. Cool. But those are generally a pretty small number in a big company like Apple. That's a pretty small number compared to the total number of shares out there on the, on the market for a small, tiny, you know, startup that it's probably the opposite, but uh, well, for sure it's the opposite if it's a startup because there's nothing available in the open market, but, <laughs> but for a company like Apple, it's the number of shares restricted for the, or held for the employees is, is pretty small compared to, number out there in the real world. Well, I'm just thinking about it because I know that a lot of in a lot of cases, you know, developers who may become new to the market and are getting hired and getting offers, you know, they the employer might sweeten the deal by saying, and we'll give you stock options, but what does that really mean? That's not cash in their pocket. That means it's potential cash in their pocket, right? Well, so that is actually the difference between stock options and what are called RSUs, restricted stock units. 
And a lot of it used to be all stock options, but a lot of the bigger companies now, in fact, almost all the bigger companies around here have moved to an RSU model because accounting is, is easier and a little bit less random too. With a stock option, the way it works is say the say the price of the stock today is ten dollars, let's say. So they will give you an option for they'll give you a certain number of options to buy that stock at, say, ten dollars. And the expectation is that in a year or two or five or whatever, that stock will have gone up to 20 or 50 or 100 or whatever, and then you get the difference because the the price the, the option price is what it would theoretically cost you to buy the option, and then you can sell the stock for the uh, the the retail price on that day, on the day you sell it. Right. So so if that. after a year the stock is still ten dollars or it goes down costs you nothing, but you've made nothing. If it goes right. up to 100 then you've made $90. So RSUs are different. Restricted, restricted stock units are different because they have, they've made a promise that after a certain amount of time, they're going to give you the stock outright. So, and then you can do whatever you want with it. You can sell it. You can hold on to it. You can, who cares? It's, it's yours. Right. Uh, now, the, the difference is that they tend to give you way fewer RSUs than they would options because, um, you know, because it is real money. I mean, it's that is cash essentially. As long as you stay long enough, that is cash. Now, it may be worth a lot less than it would be today, or maybe worth a lot more than it would be today, but they're still giving you essentially, I mean, it's not cash, but it's equivalent to cash because they're actually giving you the share. So there's, there's none of this, um, you know, this has to be above the, the option price in order for you to make money. You'll always make something on it even even if the stock goes way down as long as it doesn't go to zero you'll make something on it hmm. so uh so you know companies like that because it makes the accounting kind of easier and and uh you know it also makes it a little bit more fair to employees because if if the stock say the stock is going up fast and and you are given options well it's usually the price that they give you is is usually dependent in some way on when you join so if, say, the stock goes up $100 in a month, and I join a month after you do, well, my option price would be approximately $100 higher than your option price. So, so if you get 1,000 options and I get 1,000 options, well, for me to exercise my options, if, it's, if they're $100, that costs me $100,000. But if for you, since it was only $10, it only costs you 10 times uh, $1,000, $10,000. And the stock is worth the same amount on the open market, after that fact. Right. So it's a much better deal for you, even though you were only there a month before I was. So it's mm. kind of unfair. It's just kind of random luck in some sense. Yeah, tough luck. Too bad for you, Mark. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but with RSUs now, it's all, it's all, yeah, with RSUs, it's all, it's all different. Because sure. they say, we're, they're going to give you 10 shares, they're going to give me 10 shares. Doesn't matter what day you join, we're still going to get, both going to get those 10 shares that we'll be able to sell for the same price. On the day right. to get them. The next thing I posted here was a, a, a bit about Apple Classroom 2.0. Um, now I don't know if this is from Fraser Spears' uh, a blog, um, and we made we talked about I can't remember when it was. Maybe I don't know if it was iOS 9 or iOS 10, but there was Apple was coming out with a classroom program for schools where it sounded like um, the cl- the 
attendees of the classroom could just walk up and grab an iPad and log in with an Apple ID or something to that effect. We were that's all we kind of knew about it at the time, and it sounded like there may be a, like a multi-user iOS coming along. Um, but what turns out is that, uh, and this is uh, I found out about this through this post on or what's new in Apple Classroom 2.0 by Fraser Spears. Um, is that uh, the 1.0 version of Classroom did allow teachers to ha- to create a classroom environment and have students participate in that, but uh, it required that the school had not only iPads to give out to the students, but they also had to have a, a, an MDM server, a um, um, mobile device management server, which added a lot of overhead. And I, I don't know if you know this or not, but most schools don't have an IT guy hanging around to, to set that up for them. Um, and so there was a lot of restrictions and, and things like that and made it very difficult. And so people just didn't bother with it. Schools did, just didn't bother with the program. But this Apple 2.0 classroom thing has has uh, taken away a lot of the stresses in terms of, of setting those things up. But it still does require some a certain level of MDM. The difference with Apple Classroom 2.0 is rather than just being uh, restricted to educational institutions, anybody can access this Apple Classroom 2.0 software and create and create an environment. So if you're have running a class at, at your at your office and you want to hand out a bunch of iPads, you can have a sort of teacher student kind of enrollment. Uh, one of the things that they kind of worried about in the in the uh, from the security point of view, uh, especially with people bringing in their own devices, like students bringing in their own their own iPads that their parents may have bought for them uh, with the program, is that you know maybe some student could pwn all the iPads, right? Um, but uh, the, that isn't quite true because now you're you're not you're not locked into the program. You're uh, basically um, opting into it when the teacher sends out a signal to you, um, and it's you know been made a, a bit tougher. So I don't, um, I, mind you, kids are pretty smart, <laughs> and, and in my experience, when it came to tech, um, most uh, a lot of students were more smarter than the teachers, right? Um, and maybe your experience as well. Anyway, so the point was that I think this clarifies the, the position that there isn't really a multi-user um, uh, iOS version out there. This is more of a, a, a managed um, version where they've, they've downloaded a certificate and given you access to applications and lesson plans and things like that uh, with um, with that. And apparently, this uh, closes off the last paragraph here, which I didn't even know, but there apparently is an education edition of the 9.7 iPad out there somewhere that people can get a hold of. So that's the Apple Classroom 2.0 from our perspective, more than just code perspective, in a nutshell. There's more about this. If you're interested in this, the, the blog post by Fraser Spears goes into a little bit, a lot more detail than I've just given you right now. So, With regard to the Education Edition 9.7-inch iPad, I think yeah. what's being referred to is the $329 iPad, the one that came out in March around the time that this article was written. That is a. Remember, we talked about it being a kind of a funny upgrade where it's, hmm. um, you know, it's thicker and closer to being more like the iPad Air than the iPad Air Two. Oh right. But right, it's right. also less expensive. You know, it's kind of less flashy. And if you're looking at an education environment, flashy isn't really necessary. You want, you know, inexpensive at volume pricing sort of thing. So I think that's what yeah. he's talking about there. Yeah. Right. Right. In fact, flashy is potentially counterproductive because it's more likely to get ripped off if it's flashy. Right. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. The 329 version here, right? And and I know from educational programs at Apple that they may be. It may even be if you're like an educational institution, it may even be 10 percent less than that as well. So Apple's always sort of had an education uh, 
a perspective where they want to get into education. So they sweeten the deals, right? Right. I've, I've never dealt with mobile device management myself, so I was really unaware that some of this stuff existed. And it's right kind of interesting to me in the way that, that they do it. And it makes me wonder if they could enhance it and, you know, some future iteration to be something that families can do themselves. Right. So, because it seems like it does a lot of stuff for you that if they could just go a little bit more on refinement, then you could be, you know, like family sharing type thing where, Oh, um, you know, I'm managing this for my household and, you know, I can manage my kids, iPads and right, other yeah. type things. Yep. There's also, there's also the there's an educational discount on the actual app store. I don't know if you guys are aware of that, yeah. but um, if you are a teacher or something and have a class, you can sign up for this and you get fifty percent off on all apps. Wow! Hmm. And I know this because I've got a couple of apps that are oriented towards kids, young kids, and every once in a while, you know, usually in the fall or or the, the beginning of the you know right after the winter break. I'll get an order of 30 or 40 of, of these apps all in one day uh, at 50% off. And, and I opted into the program, so it's, so it's okay. But the, the number is significant, right? There's just 30 or 40 of them all at once, just kind of independent of anything else, which is exactly the, uh, the size of a typical classroom these days. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, so people are using this. That's a deluxe pizza order, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, well, just to, to fill in, if, if people are curious about how MDM works, is there's a, basically a certificate that gets downloaded. You can either send it directly to them through AirShare. You can email it to them. They can send them to a website where they can download that certificate. And <clears throat> what you can do with a certificate, if you, I don't know if you've ever worked in a corporate environment where you know you might have an exchange server and you might have an email address and access to a whole bunch of shares. You might even have a single sign-on server. With uh, with mobile device management, you can actually, as an IT administrator, go in and set you know like Jaime Jaime Lopez is joining my company. I can go in and create an email for Jaime. I can create all the shares that he has access to. Um, I can set up a VPN access for him so when he's uh, re- remote from the office, he's he's able to use his device. Device, whether it's a Mac or an iPad, to or even an iPhone, to um, connect to the VPN without having to do any configuration himself. As well, I can also go in and say, okay, he's not allowed to go to Safari, he's not allowed to use YouTube, he's not allowed to go to Facebook, that kind of stuff. And you can pack any any of those or all of those into a certificate so that on day one when Jaime arrives, you basically download that thing. And it can either be on a a company-owned device where it's like managed like they do on the Windows side, or uh, it could be a bring-your-own-device kind of situation where, you know, Jaime brings his own iPad in and we we place the MDM on it. Then he has access to all the tools he needs to do his work, right? And yet he can still go, when he's away from the office at home, he can still enjoy his iPad as, as he will. And then when if Jaime ever decides that he wants to leave the company, we just go in and destroy it, you know, kill his key, and then basically he loses access to all that stuff. The email access goes away, the VPN access goes away. So it's kind of an interesting way to handle uh, managing multiple, many devices through a single server or, you know, a, a server instance, right? And um, as well as that, you know, if it's a corporate device and Jaime leaves it on the bus or something, uh, you can go in and you can just erase a device and then uh, no one has any access to it, right? This is a matter of destroying the key in the secure enclave and poof, you're done. So that's MDM in a nutshell. Cool. <laughs> anyway. All right. Put my IT hat off and put my MTJ hat MTJC hat back on. Tell us a little bit more about this uh, this Uber and the city of Toronto thing. <laughs> what's, what's, what's going on there? Because I I do know 
that Toronto, uh, because of one of the professors at University of Toronto, and I think Mark mentioned his name regarding the machine learning uh, course that you can take. Right, right. Uh, that person's really well known. I don't know their name off the top oh, of my head. Uh, Jeffrey Hinton, I think. Yes, yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, this story was on CBC, and, and it was, we were talking about it before the show started. I got a, a package of links from LinkedIn while we were waiting for Mark to arrive. Um, and. It was a whole slew of Canadian tech uh, stories, and one of the ones that stood up for us, because it gets follow-up to what we were talking about last week, um, first of all, the AI side and the machine learning side, and also on the fact that we were talking about Uber, that they've hired a University of Toronto professor, Rachel Ertison, to lead a new shop here in Toronto to uh, work on self-driving cars for Uber. So, uh, and this is part of that um, Toronto Waterloo uh, thing we're talking about. Um, so they promised to hire dozens of researchers to work on this uh, self-driving technology um, coming to Canada. So, and they're facing off against Google. <laughs> this is something that I, I find interesting. I mean, on the one hand, there's the the technical side. On the other hand, I'm a little unclear. So there are you know cities that have uh, not been real happy with the autonomous driving stuff where, uh, you know, there's particular rules around like usually having a driver of some sort. And so I know both Google and Uber have sort of struggled with this, depending on, on which city or state, if it's in the United States, I'm kind of curious as to how Canada deals with that. I don't know if it's a, like more of a, a broad federal level or if each of the provinces or each of the cities handles it themselves. The United States is very local. Uh, transportation is handled at a, a provincial level. It's funded by the by the federal government. Like, or they'll they'll give them so much money to spend. But uh, we have a Ministry of Transportation for every province, um, and they would take that on. Now, now, Tim, do cars in Canada drive on on the left side of the road or the right side of the road? <laughs> well, as the people in England say, we drive on the correct side. On the correct side, <laughs> <laughs> we drive on the right, like you guys. Okay, say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I knew that. I'm just kidding. And we speak the same languages. We just had extra vowels in to mess you up. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mentioned my friend uh, or hey Ortiz, who's now a, f- a fan of the show. He listens to lots of podcasts. He was telling me um, he I saw him do a, at a meetup um, last August in Toronto at our Taco meetup. He came in for a one night uh, special um, clean clean architecture uh, talk. Um, he's following uh, Doctor uh, Bob's Doctor Bob Uncle Bob Uncle, Uncle Bob. Bob Uncle Bob's. Um, uh, stuff and there's a number of number of people that uh they're involved in clean architecture but so he what he did was he showed us over a week um how to uh, use a model view presenter uh architecture instead of model view controller it, well he, he first of all explained that model view controller as it was originally designed there was a communication channel between the view and the model um like kind of like functions one way and protocols the other way or methods one way and protocols the other way but apple has uh, apple's version of model view controller breaks that um communication between the view and the model so in other words the view only talks to controller and the controller only talks to sorry is that right controller anyway yeah, controller. <laughs> the controller talks to the model, and um, so and you know there there's uh, so we you know what we tend to do as as developers as we're learning the craft is we jam everything all the business logic and the view logic into the view controller, and uh, we go off happily. 
what should happen. So what, what the clean architecture approach takes and, you know, jump in anytime guys, but what it does is separates out the uh, view logic into a presenter and um, so that the model and there's a uh, there's a uh, either sometimes called an interactor or use case uh, module that uh, talks between handles communication between the presenter and the model or the entity or an entity gateway like a you know whether it's going off to um, uh, server or database or something some sort of data store and the idea I think behind clean architecture if I'm not mistaken is that. Uh, by separating all these concerns into sort of uh, every every part of the app has its role, the view becomes basically a dumb view that just handles the UI kit stuff, you know, like the you know, changing the color of the label or, or sending back a message that, that the users touch the label to the presenter, which then goes and sets it up over to the use case story and then sends back to the view what to update on the view, right? Um so that way, and then it, it, in this clean architecture approach, you have much more testable pieces. So now if the presenter is doing all the business logic, you can apply tests to the presenter. You can test some um, some uh, uh, view stuff as well and uh, separates all those things out so you can test, you know, your entity gateway, you can test your, uh, your view. Um, and in practice, it creates... Um, Oh, it's called, I guess, a connector. I have to look at my slides. Um, a connector module that, so the app delegate in the iOS case talks to the connector, which is created by this, this um, collection of, you know, view, presenter, interactor, and, or use, user story, and model, or entity gateway, I should say. Um, and, you know, if you could, if you push to another view controller, another connector is created, and then another you know, row of, of these items together. Um, and again, all the sort of logic is, you know, all the sort of what, what to present on the view, all that kind of stuff is all separated out. Does that make sense? Right, right. I'm somewhat familiar, but not terribly familiar with, with the clean architecture. Um, I'm a little bit more familiar with one of its variants, uh, Viper, and which I think we've mentioned once before in the show. And and a, and a variant of that called B Viper, where B is for builder, and it it sort of starts to make sense. Like I've um, the Viper stuff is less sort of less uh, segregated out into pieces than clean, so it's sort of a like a subset of of what you might do there. It's like clean is as far as I can tell, it's sort of the the ultimate right, where everything is uh, very nicely defined, very compactly defined, and that there's a single responsibility sort of principle for things, right? This, this thing does uh, text parsing and this thing does, you know, networking and you can combine the two together, uh, compose the two together, I should say. It's like, oh, look, now we've got, you know, something that handles JSON from a network service rather than having sort of, uh, what I think a lot of us, and I'm certainly, uh, somebody who does this myself, depending on the situation was like, yeah, it's kind of nice to just have it together in one place with the caveat that like, it's means that these things are not as reusable, nor are they as testable. So you have to use to other methodologies to test like manually testing or integration tests or UI testing, depending on, on what your setup is like. Right. There's another concept here, the clean architecture. I posted the link to pasted a link into the chat there. Um, from one of the, I think from the uncle Bob site, 
or one of the ones that he participates in. And um, there's a circle of hierarchies where you have the entities in the center, and then you have the use cases around that, and then controller gateways presenters in a, in a uh, section next next level. And then the blue circle on the outside is uh, devices, web, UI, external da- databases, and that kind of stuff. And, and the communication um, all travels inside. So um, like the, the database can know about the gateway um, and the gateway can know about the use case and the use case can know about the entities, but the entities know nothing about anything else outside, right? Um, so I don't know if you can see that chart there, Jaime. Yes. It, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, if you think of it as like concentric rings, perhaps? Um, yeah, yeah. How would I best describe this for uh, an audio format? It, it, it really sort of tries to isolate things. And I think starting at the entities is the interesting one, right? Because there's, there's always some sort of, you know, business entity that you're dealing with where, yeah, it could be a receipt. It could be a purchase order. It could be, uh, I don't know, something for a social graph, like a person's profile. There's some sort of essential data structures that your business, your app, your feature, whatever it is sort of operates on. So it kind of starts from there and then sort of builds out. So, okay, well, there are, uh, and those can be, you know, sort of generic in and of themselves, right? Like, uh, and, and, and even themselves are not necessarily reusable in other contexts, but it's intended to be sort of like this thing. All it knows how to do is like, I know how to represent a tax return line item. I don't know anything about a full tax return. I am just a tax return line item. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I'm not like all responsible for retrieving myself from the network or storing myself into core data or something like there's, there's other things that can do that. And that's what these other uh, concentric rings uh, attempt to do. Right. And one of the things about the, the things on the outer ring, like you mentioned, the UI, the devices, the database or the web, those are uh, in the clean architecture environment, they become interchangeable. In other words, like the entity, like you said, knows nothing about the world around it. It's kind of like this little thing that lives in a little little bubble, right? Um, and the use case, the use case is kind of like, I think where, where the CRUD stuff goes, you know, the create, reuse, update, delete stuff goes. Um and uh, yeah, so I don't know. help jump in, Mark, anytime. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this stuff is great for theory, um, mm-hmm. and and all of these different architectures have good points and bad points. Um, I I try not to get too bogged down in in you know trying to build something to map to uh, this theoretical goal and and. And just use all the guidelines and all of them where they make sense. Mm-hmm. I think that's I just, definitely a critical thing, right? So, like, l- let's take a, a perfect example. So, uh, Pi Day Countdown, which is your app, <laughs> Tim, right? Like, you yes. could, if you wanted to, uh, decide, you know what? This thing is going to be clean architecture all the way, right? Everything would be so testable and it's going to be so uh, reusable. And you, you really could, if you wanted to, like, go down this road. I, would suggest only in the scope of what Pi Day Countdown is trying to do. It's more you know, right, fun right. and then hobbyist. You're not like trying to stake your, your career on it. You're not staking your, uh, like your mortgage on it, right? This isn't part of your business or anything. This is like something you do and, and you share with the world. You know, those trade-offs may not make sense, right? Like if you're building something that's trying to be, oh, wow, this is like for the next hundred years company. He's like, oh, okay, well, you know, you, re- you really should spend some time up front trying to, to break that into a nice clean architecture so that it, you don't end up having to rewrite the whole darn thing just because a little bit of your, your business case changed. Um, 
on the flip side, you know, trying to go whole hog into these things, you know, doing it from like an academic standpoint is fine. Uh, and so something like Pi Day Countdown could be if you wanted to experiment with how this yeah, stuff totally, works. Yeah, totally, yeah. Yep. You, could, you know, you could use that as the, as the use case because it's something that you really understand. And so getting bogged down by, like, what does this app do is not going to stop you. Um, but it's okay, like, in an academic standpoint because, like, you're not you're not going to be holding up the project as, like, oh, no, like, I have to break this yet again into another piece and then this into another piece. And then suddenly you're, you know, you're pulling out your hair because it's 3 a.m. on, like, the night before that you're supposed to be delivering and you have – got a whole bunch of nice little clean pieces that don't actually do anything because all the logic isn't set up yet. Right. Right. So I think it is something to be careful. Like I wouldn't say like, Hey, like I learned this new thing. Let me just start hitting everything with it, you know, with this magic hammer. Um, but I think having the principles in mind and, and understanding, you know, it, in the perfect sense, what would this look like? will help you make those trade-offs. You might say, mm, this spot, you know, we might have reasons where we want to get to market faster. So I don't have time to do, you know, this particular, um, bit from the clean architecture. And it's not going to matter too much because we're probably going to throw that piece away or it's going to change a lot, uh, very soon. So let's invest more of my time. It's like, well, okay, I really want to make sure that the UI is fairly flexible and that I'm, you know, not tying my, my, uh, data model and my UI and my controller logic, like so tightly that I can't move it at all. Right. Like that, Mm -hmm. those are trade-offs I think you might want to think about and make. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And and all of these different architectures have a few things kind of in common and and uh things like um you know, strong encapsulation, you know, your models should just be data, they shouldn't be, you know, presenting views or anything like that. And and uh and to some degree single use uh principle is is a uh, is is part of all of these core things, although you know, you you may or may not uh, strictly abide by the you know, single use uh, uh, for for any particular object, but but in general, having things that don't do too much is always a good idea because uh, then they're easier to maintain and easier to change and swap out or fix. So so yeah, I think all of these different architectures have a core set of kind of good ideas and good practices, mm-hmm. and whether you have a presenter or a controller or a or a you know a listener or, or whatever you know that's kind of not as critical as using these solid principles. Sorry, not not solid with a capital S. Uh, using these strong principles uh, in a consistent way is is really the the lesson to take away from all this. Yeah, I think a model view view model is also a variant of this too, isn't it, Jaime? So there are. So if you take clean architecture and you break out various chunks, you end up with stuff that turns into Viper, it turns into MVVM, turns into uh, dependency injection, like a lot of different things that people are talking about. So remember, uh, this was offline when I said, um, you know, as a, as a title for like a talk, clean architecture in pieces, how B Viper plus MVVM plus DI ensure job security. Um, <laughs> That's intentionally vague, by the way. Like, uh, they're both, you know, a very optimistic and a very pessimistic way of of, of looking how I mean job security there. Uh, and I, I'm hoping that will be a talk I give at some point, at least only to sort of get my ideas of like, here's what I think a lot of these things mean and, and how I have or have not applied them to what I'm doing. Um, it feels like a whole other show <laughs> yeah. for, for for some of that content. It could go really far. I do have some ideas. I don't know that people will necessarily 
typically agree with them. And I see stuff out in the industry where like, what exactly does view model mean for our sort of neck of the woods, right? There's the way that um, the Microsoft camp looks at it. There's a way that, uh, you know, closer to us, it would be, I think, Mac OS developers think of it rather than, uh, you know, I'm an iOS developer through and through. I've Maybe if I, you know, somebody was holding me hostage, I could do a Mac app, you know, and, and really struggle to learn it and, and sort of fake my way to it. But I don't know the Mac that well. And it has some of these mechanisms in it that allow you to do a different variant of MVVM. So again, might be a follow-up content in a, in a future show where we can discuss some of these things and, and how we've experienced them in our own work. And, and maybe even just if we haven't experienced them, it's like, what do you think it is? Right. Because I don't know that I have like the valid answer. I have how I've internalized it myself. But, but I think the, a fundamental point is that there are so many variations uh, and, and they all have a lot of commonality, but, but you know, there's, it's a factorial uh, set of permutations of all the different pieces. Uh, But, but what that tells us, I think is that there is no one right answer. And, the right answer for any particular case depends on what the project is and what the language you're writing in, what the, you know, what the language features are, um, what uh, what uh, the architecture of the of the libraries that you have to work with. All of these different things come into play, and, and the you know the, the personality and preferences of the developer as well. So right, all these yeah. things come into play, and and uh, that's why you know if you ask. 10 developers is probably 11 different answers on what the right way is. Uh, so, so, so I think if, you know, make, make your own, but, but make use of the best, best principles and practices of all of them. Mm-hmm. That's, mm-hmm. that's my take. Right. I'm nodding, uh, vigorously in agreement, but you can't see that because it's an audio only <laughs> format. Yeah. Right. 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 Well, that was my, uh, foray into clean architecture. And I'm just struggling to learn how to test UI, tele- UI elements. Um, all right. So, hi, man. This brings us to the Amazon portion of the show. Yeah, they they came out with some stuff. So, um, they announced the Echo Show. It's their, um, their variant on sort of their product line of the Amazon Echo, the you know, largely voice-controlled um, virtual assistant devices. I generally thought of as like smart speakers as a category. I'm starting to see that bandied mm. about in yeah. discussions about the market. In this case, what they announced is imagine an echo, but bolt on a, a display and a camera to it. So in this case, it looks a little bit like an old school, you know, rear projection TV. Like my dad had a TV that looks kind of like this, but like, you know, at a macro level. Um, and it's, it's causing some some interest for folks in, in you know both good and bad um of course it's it has access to the alexa voice assistant and you can use your voice for this um this particular device unlike the echo the echo dot or the echo tap is intended to be used in the context of a, you know a place where it would be nice to have you know visual feedback for some things so when you use the echo um it will show you uh, in the um, companion app for the for the Echo, we'll show you like, oh, here's you know the request I made to give me the latest sports updates for the Seattle Mariners, let's say. Um, and there are some times where that's sort of additive, as in they 
uh, oh, uh, I told you that the Mariners won today 9-8 to eight against Philadelphia Phillies or something. And then it also shows me a card, and I can look at that history. Uh, in some cases, it'll be like, hey, like this doesn't make sense for me to try to read out what the result is, but I've given you the result in the companion app. This sort of shortcuts a little bit of that in that it can show you like, oh, that's what the weather forecast looks like for the next seven days. Instead of reading it out like, oh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you can just sort of quickly see it. It's still in a hands-free environment, right? It, this isn't really intended to be like a, a touchscreen environment. It's not really like throwing an iPad on, on top of this. Right. And the camera aspect is the part that allows them to do the voice and video calling pieces. So um, existing echoes have been updated to allow for voice calling between different echoes. So if your friends and family have an echo, you say, oh, you know, call Sally or Bob might be calling. You say, oh yeah, okay, let me, let me talk to Bob. Uh, you can leave voice messages, that sort of thing. The ability to do video messaging makes it kind of like um, like FaceTime or Skype but for more of an appliance sort of thing, right? So you have right. this thing there. Uh, you can maybe have it like in your uh, in your baby's nursery or maybe in the kitchen, uh, perhaps a living room sort of thing. Uh, Amazon shows the various use cases for their video. And beyond the video calling, the next step is the somewhat controversial, uh, at least from what I've seen on the internet, uh, drop-in feature, where as an opt-in thing, you can say for this uh, user, uh, or, or, you know, this contact, I will allow them to drop in at any time. And <laughs> when they do, when they do, it, it shows your video for 10 seconds with a sort of frosted pane of glass sort of thing. Right, so you really can't right. see what's going on. It gives you an opportunity to accept and go full video. It gives you opportunity to say, well, I'll accept, but only in audio mode or decline altogether. Sure. And the, one of the use cases that, that sort of makes sense is like for elderly support, right? Where you're, you're trying to, you know, you know, it's a trusted relationship and you really want to check up on grandma and grandpa and make sure they're okay. And likewise, maybe they just drop in on you because you don't mind because you have this in your library or your study room or something. It's, it's not like you're unintentionally like naked in front of them or something. Uh, likewise, Amazon shows in its video here when they introduce a device that it could be useful for like a baby nursery room where you could be watching and say, Oh, uh, let me see how the babies are doing. Oh, the babies are fine. Uh, or grandma and grandpa could be calling in and be like, Oh, how's it going with the babies? Oh, you know, I'm just here. I'm, I'm feeding them, whatever. And so it, it is interesting because a lot of attention has been placed onto using these as a sort of voice driven UI or a VUI, uh, VUI as opposed to graphical user interface GUI. And this sort of blends the two together, not necessarily as a full on replacement, but as a complement to the other things you have. Like they show the ability to see what your, um, your home kit, well, I guess not home kit, your, uh, internet of things type devices that can integrate with this will do. Like, uh, they show a, like, a security camera type view of like, you know, show me what camera one is display. Oh, okay. That's fine. It's okay. Uh, it's just the, the neighbor dropping off my mail or something, uh, not an intruder, that sort of thing. And I think it's also a step towards taking the echo and these virtual assistants away from being reactive where you are merely asking it things like, you know, set a timer. How long does it take to cook, you know, a baker's sheet of cookies, and turning it more proactive. So the, the the first step here would be, uh, you know, you're 
proactively communicating with others or people are communicating with you, meaning stuff is coming from the echo to you. Not by in and of itself. It's not as if Amazon's like, Oh, by the way, you know, today's prime day, you should go buy some stuff, $5 coupon, right? Like that would be (laughs) rather irritating. This is more like, Oh, uh, my friend is calling me or, and and maybe I'm, you know, cooking chicken in the the kitchen. So I I really, you know, I want to talk to them, uh, continue to do what I'm doing. It's not necessarily convenient to go grab my phone or anything. Uh, or maybe somebody is helping me to like, Hey, uh, mom, like how do, how do I cook this thing? Like, how do you make this, you know, this hamburger, the way that you made it, I'm, I'm struggling to season it and, and you, they can see there and communicative. I, I'd say folks should look at the video and sort of get an idea of whether they want this themselves, but it's, it's the sort of thing that you've seen pieces of this sort of solution before. It's not going to be like, Oh wow. Like that was like a brilliant idea and like totally blows your mind. It's more like a, Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense. Right. We, we've seen video conferencing stuff. We've seen voice controlled stuff. It's more of a uh, evolution of a lot of the things that people are working with today. Mm-hmm. Does Android have um, a FaceTime equivalent sort of for video chat with people? The closest thing is their duo app, right? Okay, which okay. hardly anybody uses. There's like oh, one okay. person in my contact list that does. Um, well, I was going to, I was going to say, because it seems to me like it's, um, I mean, I get the whole having to have the little, little video monitor there, but is this plugged into the wall? Like you can't, it's not portable, can move around the house and that kind of stuff, right? Correct. So it's not, it's not the sort of thing where like, oh, um, you know, some folks that I know, they do face, you know, regular FaceTime with their family members in Minnesota, as an example. Right, right. And, and you know, they set a time, they go sit, you know, probably like on a couch in front of a coffee table or something. And that's where they do that from. Maybe they're using their laptop. If it's Skype instead of FaceTime, right, right. Whatever the case may be. Yeah. Cause I remember Mark and I were telling you about back in the day when we were young, there used to be a telephone in one room in the house that might have a long cord on it, but you had to go to that house to do all your communicate that part of the house to do your communications. Yeah, or get a really long cord and drag it into another yeah, room. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or you'd have the long extension so you could <clears throat> lock yourself in the room so your mom couldn't hear you talking. But yeah, um, yeah. but it seems to me like now people kind of like they have their iPhone or they have you know their iPad and that's where they'll do this sort of you know sharing with grandma and grandpa kind of stuff, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't. I mean, I get I get the sort of like you know hey you know hey. What's it? Um, Echo is it? I guess order me some butter kind of thing, but or add butter to my to do my my grocery list or whatever. But I don't know. It's a weird, a weird sort of uh, choice. I mean, yeah, maybe it sits next to your television or something like that. You know, some place, some part of the house that you're always you're always sitting at. You know, so because we all sort of have, I guess, in a, a part of the house where we all sort of hang out, right, or apartment or whatever. Yeah, for for various contexts, and I, and I think that's the key here. Oh, and I should right. mention that. There is also the ability to do the voice uh, voice messaging and voice calling through the companion app. So if you are out and about and somebody tried to connect to your your Echo to contact you, you would get that message you know, into the app and you can reply there either textually or through voice. Yeah. I think this isn't like a new Echo that replaces all the other Echoes. It's one that meets a particular niche of usage. And it's largely usage where there is either the need to have a visual display. So I think the kitchen will be perfect for this sort of right, thing where right. 
uh, it's like, oh, okay, you know, play some music, and then I can look over. Oh, is that what the lyrics were for that thing? Or you know, show me a video from YouTube on how I'm supposed to cook this chicken, or how am I supposed to peel this garlic? Okay, great. You know, it could tell you that with an existing echo, but showing you is a is a a good additive sort of thing. And, and then of course the the voice calling and the drop in pieces. That might be a nice little segue into uh, this gadget has come out in two to three weeks, perhaps after the echo look, the other new gadget that came out. That's even more of a niche thing. So that one is a sort of a, an echo, but it has sort of a, what would I describe? Like a rectangular, a rectangular camera, critically like a full body camera. So it's essentially trying to be like a, uh, like a full body mirror that you might have in your bedroom. And, And when they showed how it was being used, that was kind of the intention they had there to have it be like in your bedroom, because this is related to fashion before anybody goes any uh, crazy. They're talking about bedroom talk. This is supposed to be like, you know, Hey, I want to see recommendations for I'm wearing this outfit today. Should I wear this outfit or should I wear this other outfit? And there's a companion bit of app and some sort of machine learning type thing that's, that's going on here. That's trying to give you a yay or nay sort of thing. Yeah. Do these pants make me look fat? Right, right. And <laughs> and I've wondered, like, oh, maybe in the future, it'd be like, mm, we've noticed, because we have all this, you know, daily data, we've noticed you gained, like, 10 pounds here. Um, you can either <laughs> how, buy how this exercise bike. How a $5 discount, yeah. Yeah, buy this exercise bike, you know, prime shipping, or um, maybe you want to buy some bigger clothes, you know, if you give in. Or, <laughs> right. or C, buy a new Echo because you just smashed the old one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do you see do you see like you have an echo i think right at home or you have the google you know you have the google one but do you have the echo one as, as well or I like, do. do you see do you see people having multiple echoes throughout their house or, or is it sort of a one echo per household kind of deal here i think it's going to depend on how big your house is in whether house means house you know it could be your studio apartment it could be a townhouse it could be a rather uh, meager starter home. It could be a rather sizable, almost mansion sort of thing, right? So, I think yeah. depending on how big your area is and you know how much coverage you can get, because the the far field voice recognition is really good for the Echo uh, and pretty good for the Google Home, but there's only so far they can get, right? If it's like, oh, uh, you know, I'm I'm Bruce Wayne. I'm at Wayne Manor. I'm in the East Wing. It's like, well, the West Wing is not going to hear me, right? <laughs> It's just right, too right. far. I should have multiple of them. And that was true even when it was just the Echo and, and the considerably uh, less expensive Echo Dot that you could buy and multi-pack and just spread them through your house. I think what Amazon is doing here is they're spreading out you know different types of things that will meet different niches, right? Like, I'm never going to buy the Echo look because I'm really not that much into my own personal fashion. I'm rather shabby if you see me out in the real world. Um but there are people who do enjoy that, right? There's a reason why stuff like uh, Michelle Pham's YouTube series is so popular um, because people are really into that. That is their hobby. Just like here, we're talking about code and technology, and that's our hobby, right? Uh, same thing with yeah. the Echo Show. I could I could see myself getting that because I have wondered about having an Echo in the kitchen for things like you know, show me a video of how I'm supposed to prepare this thing because I I thought I knew, but I really don't, and I don't want to have to go, you know. Uh, wash my hands, go set up, you know, uh, like look at my iPad, or if I'm lucky, maybe I have the video running on, uh, on my Chromecast, some sort of YouTube thing on my big screen TV. That's okay. Like that's inconvenient there where I had to like, you know, Oh, my hands are dirty with this chicken. Let me go wash, clean up, go over, stop what I'm doing rather than just 
merely going on with my life where the computer is everywhere, right? Certainly there's a, there's a nice aspect of having something like, uh, you know, I wear an Apple watch all the time. I have my iPhone with me, uh, most of the time, even when I'm at home, it's usually not too far away, but that would have been really inconvenient, right? Like a touch device is very inconvenient when your hands are filled with chicken innards, right? right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think these things will necessarily all like replace. I'm not really looking for a like, oh, wow, this is like the one true thing, right? We we sort of went through that with, oh, wow, like touch interface is the one true thing. I was like, well, I don't know. I kind of, kind of like the point and click aspect of my Mac for, you know, using Xcode. It, it's kind of not as good if it was, you know, touch enabled um, or at least touch only. Uh, even though I know that folks would certainly like to have some sort of Xcode available for touch devices like the iPad, I don't think that would fully replace what's there. So I view this as more of a, an, an additive, an alternative, and sort of complementary way of, of interacting with things. Hmm. And just curious, uh, just curious, can any of these things read a Kindle book to you yet? <laughs> uh, it's I guess question. it depends on what you mean. Like. There is uh, interactivity with um, Audible.com, which is owned by Amazon. So it can at least play the audio version of the book. I don't know if it does the text reading for things that are not covered by Audible. That's actually a good question. I don't know that for a fact or not. Yeah, I know where you're going with that, Mark, because it's one of the reasons I don't use Kindle. I tend to use PDF or whatever, and you know, you can select the text and tell it to read it to you. But yeah, it'd be nice if there... I, well, I don't know if there's a voiceover uh, capability in... in um Kindle with the Kindle app, at least on the on the iPad, right? Might be. I'm I not don't think there much is. of a Kindle user, so I don't know. I use Kindle on the iPad quite a bit. I don't think there's a read. No, but I mean, if you turn option. on if you turn on VoiceOver, VoiceOver, and you and you double swipe down with two fingers, um, mm. VoiceOver don't will know. read VoiceOver will read the contents of the page to you. Like it'll just go all the way down the page and read to you what's on the page. In the Kindle app, are you sure? No, well, I don't know about in the Kindle app, but yeah, I don't see why not. What if you know if you have visual impair- visual impairment, you're going to want to use VoiceOver anyway. And it works in it works in all apps, as far as I know. So, oh, so Tim, you're talking about the accessibility? Yeah, that, yeah, you yeah, say yeah, VoiceOver yeah, in yeah, that case. Yeah. Okay, I got you. I got as you. As opposed to like in, in Safari on on either device, I can select the block of text and I can you know right click on it and say read this to me, right? So using the speech right. Uh, synthesizer, right? This is what. Amazon's doing, um, Google's doing its own thing. Yeah. Uh, relatively recent entrance is Microsoft. They are not yet doing their own sort of Microsoft branded device for this, but they're enhancing windows 10 to make it so that windows 10 laptops are, uh, voice assistant enabled, very similar to the way that Siri is on Mac OS. And they're also partnering with HP, uh, Hewlett Packard on a Cortana uh, smart speaker. And there was another smart speaker that I think was mentioned in the article that we'll have in the show notes for those of you driving home. That was, uh, Harman Kardon. I've recognized the name. I don't know how it's pronounced that mm, they, right. they announced yeah. today that they're making their own Cortana powered speaker. Wow. And part of the reason I also bring this up today is there's a stronger and stronger rumor as we get closer to WWDC that it, it kind of feels like Apple might throw its hat into the ring here too. Um, I don't know if they'll go the Echo Show route where there's a screen of some sort. It kind of feels like maybe they might put out a real nice quality speaker that is Siri enabled. So you can imagine doing something like, you know, hey, 
play me the latest from the weekend or play me the latest, you know, the top hits from the Beatles, you know, with your Apple music subscription, of course. Right. Cause we've talked about the services part of Apple's business and how that's a growing uh, and increasingly important part of their business. So do you want to tell us about uh, visual studio real quick? Yeah, just briefly, <laughs> uh, visual studio for Mac is, has come out. It was in preview before. As far as I can tell, it is largely targeted at um, Xamarin developers. So, is that here, Visual Basic or no? So using uh, C Sharp. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So they they mention here about being able to do um, what they're calling native mobile apps for Android, iOS, and macOS. I think when they say native, they really mean Xamarin, right? So so not what like you and I and Mark would consider native. It'd be like, well, it's not a web view. It's not uh, Apache Cordova or PhoneGap sort of thing. It's not a hybrid app. This is you're using some other mechanism that is you know native code that generates native code. If that makes sense, right? Right. The IDU, IDE you love now on the Mac. Visual Studio is pretty good. Like yeah, Windows Windows people love love it. I mean, they rave about it. You know what it doesn't do? It doesn't crash on the IntelliSense every day <laughs> the way the Xcode does. <laughs> I'll tell you that. There's, that's a winner right there. Um, pretty solid uh, tooling is, you know, software developer tools is you know part of Microsoft's history, and they're really good at it. Uh, I did, you know, when I was doing some .NET-based stuff, I really enjoyed using Visual Studio. And this is back in, like, 2012, so I can only imagine that it's even better. What I'm, what I'm seeing here looks... You know, pretty nice and clean. Mm-hmm. I know that their debugging tools and stuff are, are, are pretty good. And so I'd be really happy to see if one day this could turn into um, some sort of competitor, just like the way that, what is it, JetBrains has its app code competitor. Love to see right. this evolve into that, at least for now. Um, as far as I can tell, it's Xamarin, but Xamarin and web only. So uh, if you're not interested in going down that route, it, this may not be interesting to you. But if you are in a situation where you are working with those cross-platform tools, I think you should take a look at it. So let's do the Picketrama part of the show. Jaime, do you have some picks? I do. And the first one is, uh, there's a blog post here. Uh, funny enough, talking about making Visual Studio perfect, but don't despair. Uh, this doesn't have anything to do with Visual Studio, despite the blog post. It's really about this uh, programming font called uh, Fire code or Fira code. I don't know how it's actually pronounced, but this is a uh, monospaced font done by Nikita Proko- Prokopov. I don't know how to pronounce that. I apologize for butchering that, Nikita. And it does something kind of interesting. If you take a look at the link and you scroll kind of, I don't know, about three quarters of the way down, you really see what's happening there. So it has, uh, what do they call them? Special, I'm going to mess this up, special glyphs or ligatures for common programming symbols that you might use. So if you take a look at the example of, uh, like not equals, right. You would normally type that out as exclamation point or bang equals. And you would see that visually as a very skinny character, that being the exclamation point and the equals. And then you really have to look and make sure that that is in fact, not equals as opposed to equals, which is something I've run into depending on, um, you know, my font setting or sorry, my uh, display settings or perhaps it's just you know late in the day and i'm really tired but if you see a equals with a big old slash through it like you really know without a doubt that that single glyph represents not equals and likewise i've, I've started using this font and it's really nice for uh, greater than 
equal to or less than equal to where instead of being, you know, opening uh, arrow or opening what uh, angle bracket and, and equals, it's actually like you would write it mathematically. If you were back in school, you would see the inequality and you would see the little bar underneath. Uh, the other thing I really like, if you are a Swift user, is the way that it displays the arrows. For some reason, makes more sense to me than seeing dash angle bracket. That makes sense. So, like, in my mind visually says, oh, okay, like, that's showing me what the function is going to return. The thing after that might be, you know, dash arrow um, string or bool or you know, void, I guess, if you didn't want that route. But seeing it here as an arrow is like, yeah, it, uh, this is exactly what it's doing. And it just, I don't know, it, it's not transformative per se, but for me, I find it a whole lot easier to see exactly what's going on. Sort of like if you um, unfocus your eyes a little bit and kind of looking at the code as a whole, you'd be like, oh, okay, I can very quickly point out where here's an inequality statement, here's an equality statement, here's a not equal statement, here is uh, an arrow for a function definition. Um, and some other things like, uh, I'm still getting a little bit used to the at symbol and how it handles it. It, it really points it out a little bit more and it's, uh, worldwide web ligature is a little funny, but I think I could get used to that. The good thing about Xcode is that, um, it's not all or nothing. You can go in and, and change your font just about any time you want. By default, it, from what I saw, it should be, uh, San Francisco mono regular at 11 points. And here I just switched it over to. Uh, fairer code, regular 11 points. And it looks pretty good uh, either on my, uh, what is this? Dell. I don't know what the model is monitor or my retina display on my MacBook pro. But you're still typing, for instance, uh, bang equals to for not equals, even though it changes the font with the, with the glyph, right? Yeah. Like if you've ever seen, um, well, actually a perfect example is when you type in emoji, like let's say like in Slack, right? You put in, uh, colon dog colon and Slack just turns that magically into like the little dog emoji. Right. Right. That makes sense. It, it works very similar to that. Or like in Unicode where they've handled like, um, when they added the, uh, the women versions of things like doctor and pilot and things, they, they originally did that. Like there are actual glyphs specifically for that, but they, added support by saying like, if you see woman and doctor or the symbols for those in emoji space, you can note as backwards compatibility for a system that doesn't understand it, it will show woman and doctor, but for systems that are upgraded, uh, let's say like the latest version of iOS 10, it will show you the brand new glyph. That is the woman doctor. If that makes sense. That, that, that's how I, right, like, yeah. I'm not, yep. I'm not a Unicode nor am a, uh, like font and, and text handling sort of person, but it, mm -hmm. that's how I mentally represent what's going on here. Yeah. Well, that's what ligatures are. Basically they're fonts that replace, you know, like in, in typesetting, they replace things that optically look better or in print than, than the actual, like if you're typing F and L together, there's a ligature that has FL and F and L where they're kind of glommed together. So depending on the font you're using, you'll get uh, the glyph or the, separated letters right so, so oh, I, I, cool. under the hood it's 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 still writing the, the code you're sending to the compiler right so is what i'm saying right yeah and that's actually a perfect um perfect example that came up when i was pair programming uh, just today uh, about this very topic um oh and before i forget i should i had my 
had this note in the show notes and I really apologize for not mentioning it at the beginning. This was pointed out to me as a potential pick of the week and now official pick of the week by uh, Kim Malberg, who we've mm-hmm. mentioned before in the Ask MTJC section. Sure. Um, but with regard to like, what is it actually doing under the covers? Um, I was able to prove that out by going into Git and showing like, look, this is what the diff looks like. This, these are actual normal characters that would be there. It's not throwing some weird funky thing in there. Like there's no worry that, Oh no, when it goes to my machine, now it's going to be this weird square because I don't have that font installed. So I thought that was great. It's something that I'm, I'm trying out and getting used to. I'm liking it so far. may not be for everybody, but that's okay. Cool. What's your next pick? The next one just came out, I don't know, about a week ago, I guess. May 3rd, uh, yeah. It was new to me, and it's introducing Yelp's local graph. So Yelp being the service that tells you all about various people, places, things. You know, you want to see a rating, like, is this restaurant really good or not? Will I really enjoy this sort of thing? Uh, apparently, they have an API. I, I was not aware that there was an API available, but at the very least, this blog post talks about the fact that they are making it uh, GraphQL, uh, which we've talked about before, the Graph Query language uh, available. So you can query things like, you know, show me this business with this given ID. Um, and, you know, what I want to know, you know, what are the ratings? What are the photos? And they can very seamlessly give you, you know, what it is that you're looking for rather than having to, let's say, stitch together two different or multiple uh, REST API uh, calls. You can make the singular call that gives you the information that you want. So I thought that was kind of neat. Like, I've, I have not used this myself, so your mileage may vary, you know, all sorts of regular warnings. It looks like it's behind a beta program of some sorts. So I don't fully know uh, how easy it is to get into that. But it's certainly something to keep a watch on. Um, and I know folks have used, let's say, like Foursquare's API for a lot of stuff, um, location-based stuff, but also sort of like getting lists of venues and understanding uh, context of what's going on, let's say for um, augmented reality apps or mapping app type things. And so this is something that I will keep an eye on myself to see if this is like an alternative data source that might be interesting to look at. Cool. Okay. Well, my pick is a very simple one. There's a couple that I could talk about on the new releases on Ray Waterlike, but if you're following them, you probably know what they are already and I can bring them up next week. But uh, my pick this week is on um, our friend Greg Hio. Uh, his talk from Swift Summit uh, went online, I think, last week um, or two weeks ago, maybe. Uh, and it was called the Four C's, and uh, Greg likes to take you know, little in, little bits of the Swift language and talk about them. So here, the Four C's are clarity, cohesion, coupling, and complexity. And so his video, uh, rather entertainingly, goes through. Um, how these uh, four um, C's, clarity, cohesion, complexity, and coupling, uh, fit together into the Swift language. And, um, yeah, check it out. That's my pick. You guys cool. Know? And this is last year? This is the 2016 Swift Summit? Uh, yes, yes. Okay, yes. cool. I cool. think he was waiting for that to come out and came out a couple of weeks ago, I think. Right. So that's about it for the week. So, uh, hey, Jaime, if people want to find you on the interwebs, wherever they look. They can look on Twitter, and I am at DevOfTheHair. And Mark, if people want to find you on the interwebs. Mark R at Smapsoft.com or at Smapsoft on Twitter. All right. And as I said, I'm Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. That's probably the best way to get hold of me. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye. Goodbye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. 
There, you can find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items to be talked about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website, and if you could, please write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press that recommend button. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help spreading the word. We're also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. So when do we start recording? Tim? When did we start recording? No, when should we start recording? <laughs> <laughs> About uh, an hour and thirty-six minutes ago. Yeah, yeah, that's what I've got. An hour thirty-eight and forty-five. Got, yeah, one thirty. Yeah, one thirty-six uh, thirteen. It's been a long day. Yeah, went saw so Jean-Michel Jarre. So oh, how was that? It was really good. He. Um, I wasn't aware, like, I don't know how I did this, but I ended up with um, seats in the, like, right up the front in the orchestra, what they call the orchestra. Um, mm-hmm. I thought buying tickets that said KK would be, like, back in the nosebleeds, but no, they were up, actually up front. So we were fairly close. So I got lots of pictures and videos and stuff like that and periscoped a couple of songs. And, uh, yeah, he's, for those of you who don't know, he's a pioneer of um, electronic rock. Uh, his first, the second album was called Oxygen, and um, in 76, 74, 76, somewhere around there. And he sold 15 million copies like that first batch, right? And he's done a number of electronic pieces. So it was it's all like synthesizer. He had a, a really old ARP synthesizer on the stage, and he had a, a Moog with a big tower on top of it. He had a VCS-3. He was using an iPad at one point. He had, like, you know, the guitar and a number of other keyboards. And basically, he and two other musicians play all of his music live. But the cool part about the show is he has all these, uh, all the lighting and stuff like that's done in the LEDs, but he had these, you know what a scrim is? Like a, a scrim is like a, a transparent, uh, like a, something you can see through if you light from behind. It's a, like a fabric that they use in theater a lot, like for ghosts and things like that to appear. Uh, but he had these um, large scrims made, one right at the front of the stage, and it was like a, it was like a, a LED grid that hung down in front of the band, and then he had one behind the band and one at the back of the stage. And so they were projecting um, computer renderings on them all during the show. So it was like this really weird, you know, amazing light show. They had lasers and all that other kind of stuff. So it's really from a, if you, and apparently this is his first time playing in North America. And so we saw the first of the North American tour uh, shows yesterday um, from right up front. So it was really good. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting, interesting dude. But yeah. And it's like, you know, he's totally very French, like very sort of European in the way he's, you know, trying to get the the audience to participate. And, you know, typical of Toronto audience, we're so polite. We just sit there and, you know, bop our heads back and forth and he's trying to get us to stand up and clap and <laughs> but it, like just visually stunning the whole show like it was just amazing to watch that stuff and of course you know he played all the hits as it were right <laughs> if we call it that and it's it's funny like I, I probably didn't know three quarters of the music that he played but there wasn't there wasn't an, any track that sucked like he was he's that i mean it's just that that amazing good music you know so mm-hmm. weird stuff yeah he's playing in um 
Berkeley and Los Angeles, I believe. Oh. Yeah, so, because he's playing Boston, he's playing Montreal tomorrow, I think, or tonight, and then he's playing in um, Boston, and then I think he heads down to L.A. and Berkeley, and then he's uh, he's gone. <laughs> he's the wind. Yeah, it's like, you know, the amount of production into this show is amazing, like, so. But using all the sort of new technology, like the LED strips and that kind of stuff, right? Um, and all program computer programmed and and oh I should tell you the scrims actually moved too so like as during the like they started out covering the front of the stage but you know they were they were sort of they could break up into different sections and kind of move back and forth I put a couple of um, pictures up on my Instagram account of course I used the Instagram video so Greg would be happy <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know and I periscoped some stuff and I recorded some stuff I'll pitch and put up on YouTube but yeah it's all good so that's that. Color Girl Innovators, now is the time to go north to Canada. That's the article. <laughs> yeah, but then if you scroll down, there's Google plans new high-tech city in Toronto. Canada mm. wants Silicon Valley's tech employees. And the mm. one I the one I posted into the notes is Uber hires Rachel Urtasan to lead a new ATG self-driving unit in Toronto. So you can see there's a whole pile, a whole pile of articles about how uh, Canada wants to be Silicon North. Yeah, the the one I saw recently was the Google Plans new high tech city in Toronto. Oh really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I something that keeps keeps coming up is like we we know there's tech in, in Toronto for sure, but nobody's really clear if it's actually a thing or if it's really just you know city of Toronto trying to draw this stuff over. Right. Without right. being there, it's really hard for me to to say. Yeah. Um, externally facing, I would be really hard pressed to name stuff coming out of Toronto that wasn't through like a pre-existing relationship with an American company. So mm-hmm, I think that's, mm-hmm. that's something they're going to have to fight where they're going to need like, um, some startup or startups to be really hot out of Toronto for it to yeah like really pick up steam. I think and the story is, or seems to be that uh, the lead, the link to me when my email was that because of all the immigration laws, uh, here it is. Canada battles us for tech talent. That's the, the, uh, search, thing that they've populated my feed with i guess this, this mm-hmm. is the new linkedin right they're now trying to be trying to be uh more of a news site than right you know how many software developers would you like to buy today yeah but i guess my my proposition here is like i think it, you know once toronto has its i don't know its own uber or its own spotify oh major you know, major its yeah, own yeah. amazon where it's like holy smokes i can't believe that's from toronto yeah uh, that's so shopify the sort of thing is canadian isn't it isn't shopify canadian yeah, they are, and from Toronto, if I'm not mistaken. Right, and isn't FreshBooks Canadian? Yes. Um, right, and isn't Flixel Canadian? Yeah, but like, you're kind of going <laughs> down, like it's decreasing yeah, in there, no, right? Don't it's say not, it, don't say it. <laughs> like you could throw a brick at a random place in Silicon Valley, and you're like, oh man, yeah. you know, I hit, you know, Yelp, I hit Facebook, yeah. I hit Twitter, you know, that yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. For sure. Well, that's what I was saying to saying about when I first met Mark is like I didn't realize when I went down to to uh, MacWorld that you can't swing a cat in San Francisco and not hit a developer, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Whereas up here, like to be honest, with you, if you ask me, walking down the street in Toronto, yeah, there's a lot of tech and there's a lot of you know I'm, I'm in the financial district every day and there seems you know a lot of guys running around in suits, but as far as development goes, and in, no fence intended to the people down on King Street, King and Spadina, where there's a lot of developers. Um, it's like Toronto or even Canada is asleep when it comes to technology, you know, or, or they're, they're being very conservative about it. Right. It's typical Canadian behavior. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting angle. And like I said, um, before, um, 
Markham used to be, that's where IBM has a big office and, you know, uh, Apple used to have an office there as well, was sort of a silicon niche kind of place where, you know, um, larger American companies would have a Canadian branch or a large Canadian install there, right? But nothing like, you know, driving between Cupertino and, and, and San Francisco. It's just like one company after another. And then, like you said, walking downtown in San Francisco and that sort of was it south of what is it called? Market? South of Market, yeah. South of Market. That whole area is just packed with like you know Dropbox and Docker yeah. and. and uh, but you got to realize, Tim, there's nowhere else like that in the U.S. either. Right, right. I mean, there's yeah. you know, places like Seattle have, have a lot going on, but it's I mean it's nothing like here. Yeah, not not to that degree. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, it's definitely unique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 